Let's go ahead and uh, open up our Bibles to, to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, 20, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26 this morning. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for the, the gift of your word. Father, we thank you for this uh, precious teaching uh, from our Lord. And uh, as, we, as we turn to it, uh, Father, I ask for, for humble hearts and uh, open ears. God, that we would uh, hear the truth of Scripture and, and know that, um, Lord, some of this stuff is just for now. Father, that, that the things that seem to consume us so much, Lord, are, are temporal and, and just for today. Father, and the things that we often neglect are for all eternity. Father, we ask that while we live here now, now Father, while we, while we toil through this life, we would be responsible uh, with the things that You've given us. Father, but that our, our focus would be eternal. God, that we would uh, give You the glory in all things. Lord, we love You and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I find it fitting that we're, we're here in... In, in chapter 20, um, talking about paying taxes after uh, this past week, right? Uh, we got a few days, a few extra days. I, I don't know how that all works, how they decide with the Easter government holiday and all that. But, you know, tax day this year was April 18th instead of April 15th. And so a little bit different this year. But, but here we are, and we're in this passage, which deals directly with the question of taxation um, and indirectly deals with multiple other truths. Uh, there's, there's many ways that we could, we could kind of divide this passage and look at, look at what's here, but there's, there's three primary things that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the hatred of the rulers for Christ and, and how really what is going on here is the direct result of compounded uh, sin and uh, qu- compounded enmity from the Pharisees, from the chief priests, from the rulers from the scribes towards Christ. Uh, we're also going to look at the uh, necessity of paying taxes. Praise God. Um, happy about that. Happy about that. Um, and, and also, thirdly, um, we're going to look at this, this thing that, that we have to read a little bit between the lines for, but if our money is stamped with the images of our rulers, our earthly rulers, um, and we're to give to God the things that are God's, uh, we're going to look at the, the image uh, that we are stamped with. 
um, as believers in Christ. And so we begin here at verse 19 uh, with this hatred, this enmity, this hostility towards Christ. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. If you remember the past, not last week, last week was Easter Sunday, but the week before last, we looked at this preceding parable in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus tells this parable of the tenants, the parable of the wicked tenants, as it's often called, about these, these people who, who leased out a vineyard from an owner. And when the owner came to, to receive the payment that was due to him, sent his servant, they beat his servant, they beat the next servant, they beat the third servant, and finally the owner said, well, what will I do? I will send my son. And then they finally said, well, the inheritance will be ours. And they killed the son. And the, Jesus asked the crowd, you know, what, what should this man do? And, they, and over in uh, the, the, the Matthew account of this parable, the, the, the people answer, well, they should put these wretches to a wretched end. Like, they should, you know, string them up. Get rid of them. Kill them. That's what they deserve. That's the punishment that they deserve. And the Pharisees and the scribes, rightfully, the chief priests as well, rightfully understood that Jesus was telling this about them because he says, he quotes uh, from Psalm uh, 118 here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so here they are rejecting Christ. He's speaking directly against them. They're not denying his teaching. They're not denying anything that he says. They just hate him. They just hate him and they want him to die. And they understood that he told this parable against him. And in their hatred, right? Think of all the commands that they're breaking, right? They're conspiring. They're lying. They want to put him to death. They want to murder him. They're, they're breaking, um, they're envying his position and his prestige with the people. Uh, they're, they hate him. They hate him. These, these men who are supposed to be the religious and moral leaders of the nation of Israel hate Christ. They hate the things of God. And this has been the normative pattern for the Jewish people since there ever was a Jewish people, right? Since, Mo- since Moses, under the, the command of God, had, had led the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness and into the promised land where Joshua led them following Moses' death, it's a pattern over and over and over again. that They would go through these seasons. Sometimes they would worship God the vast majority of time. They would not worship God. They would resist Him. And they would receive punishment. And so here in this ultimate act of resistance, it says that they sought to lay hands on him. They sought to lay hands on him. They hated him. They were convinced that Christ was a blasphemer and he deserved to die. Over in John chapter 19, verse 7, when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, the Pharisees say, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Jesus, by declaring himself the Son of God, was claiming to be the Messiah. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem during the, uh, during the triumphal entry, as it's often called, and everyone was praising his name and proclaiming um, the wonders of what he had done, and the, the Pharisees say, hey, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus says, well, if I tell them to be quiet, even the rocks will cry out. Right? Jesus was receiving worship of the people. And the Pharisees 
denied that he was the Christ, denied that he was the Messiah, and instead labeled him a blasphemer. They've rejected him. They've rejected the cornerstone. So whereas they have no fear for Christ, whereas they have no respect for Christ, where they have no regard for his teaching, whereas they have no regard for the miracles that he's done that have proven the, the truth of his words, they fear the people. It says, but they feared the people. Right? They're sure that Christ, the people are sure that Christ is Messiah. They've been singing His praises in the temple and on the road to Jerusalem. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests are desperate to keep their place as rulers. They're rejecting Christ as King and they themselves want to stay in power. And in order to do that, what they have to do, right? they can't just get rid of Christ, right? They have to turn the people against Christ. And the best way for them to do that is to get Christ arrested for, for several reasons. One is that they themselves have no authority to execute. If the Pharisees and the religious rulers had their, their druthers, they would execute Christ right now in the way that they tried to um, earlier on in his ministry. When, when Jesus was, was teaching in Nazareth and it says that they, they went out and you know, tried to throw him over the brow of the cliff, that was the traditional way of executing someone, particularly for blasphemy. Throw them off a cliff and throw rocks on them until they stop moving. That's what they would have preferred to have done to Christ. But they have no authority to do that. They have no authority to execute because they've been stripped of that power by the Roman government. And, and, and even if they did have the, the power to do that, if the Pharisees just took Christ and threw him off a cliff and killed him, the people would turn on them. The people would turn on them and they themselves would be killed. What they need here is they need for the Roman government to arrest Christ. They need the Romans to crucify him because in the minds of all the people, right, and even in the minds of Jesus' own disciples, they understood completely from the Old Testament that the Messiah in their minds was going to be this political liberator. That this Messiah was going to come and liberate them from Roman oppression. And what better way, right, what better way to get the people to turn on Christ than to get the people whom Christ is supposed to kick out of their country to arrest Christ and put him to death? They knew that if they could get the Romans to arrest Christ, then the people would turn on him. And so they hatch a plan. They hatch a plan here in verse 20. So they watched him, right? And the idea here, you kind of get, the, get it from the text, is they watched him. They're like, ah, kind of being sneaky. You know, like, ah, how are we going to catch Christ here? And they sent spies who pretended to be sincere so that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. In the Matthew and Mark accounts, right, it says that it was essentially the students of the Pharisees, right? And I've find this kind of funny, right? It's, the picture to me is comical because Jesus recognizes all the Pharisees at this point. He's seeing them all. They've been doing battle with him the whole time. But maybe, maybe Jesus won't recognize the youngsters, right? So they send the, the students, right? They send the JV, if you will, right? Maybe not even the JV team. This is like the Frosh team. Right? This is the ninth grade basketball team. And they're like, 
All right, and do you guys remember, some of those of you that ever played high school sports, right? There's the varsity team, and they're usually pretty good. And there's the JV team, and they're okay. And then there's the freshman team, and like freshmen everywhere, they're just a bunch of idiots chasing a ball around, right? And that's, that's the image that's here in my head, is that you've got the freshman team. And they've got no idea what's going on, right? And, and, and it's all, like you, uh, in my, my head, it's like the coach gathers up the freshman team, and he draws up this great plan, right? I've got a great game plan, and if this was a football team, there would be X's and O's all over the board. And it just goes horribly wrong. So that's my... That's my fun way that I like to think of what's going to happen here. But the X's and O's are supposed to all converge at the ball, and instead they just all go scrambling. It's just, it's, um, it's fantastic. And they pretended to be sincere, all right, so that they might catch him in something he said. Jesus has been confounding the religious elites with his divine power and his divine wisdom for years now. Right? The Pharisees have come to him over and over and over again from the very beginning. Right? Remember back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus healed the paralytic. And they, you know, they let the paralytic down through the roof. And, and um, Jesus says, ah, you know, you're, by your faith, your sins are forgiven. And the, the Pharisees are over there going, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? This man is a blasphemer. And Jesus says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. Right? Jesus had been confounding the Pharisees for years. Literally for years. Right? They came to him and said, Ah, this man casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus says, You guys are idiots. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Right? And he's been confounding them for years and years. So they come up with this grand idea. Alright, we've tried the enemy tact. Let's try to be friends. Right? Perhaps if we kind of get all chummy with Christ... Perhaps we can catch him in something that he says so as to deliver him. You know, if I mentioned just a few moments ago, they need to get Christ to the people who can kill him. They have no authority to kill. They have no authority to execute. But if he's arrested, right? If he's arrested, then all the people will realize that he's not this conquering Messiah. Because what kind of conquering Messiah allows himself to be arrested. And then the tables will turn. Then the tables will turn and this this whole um, group of people who's been praising Christ as the Messiah and praising Him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, they'll flip on a dime. They'll flip on a dime. And Jesus, in His divine wisdom and, and in His full acceptance of His atoning work on the cross, does that willingly. He lets himself be lets himself be arrested, and when when the Roman ruler asks him, you know, are you a king? He says, Ah, my kingdom's not of this earth. If it was, my disciples would be fighting for me. Jesus willingly goes to the cross, right. and so the disciples of the Pharisees, uh, the the JT, JV team or the Frosh team, they go to him, and they start with this kind of vain flattery. They start with this kind of buttering up statement, if you will. And they say to him in verse 21, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. It's amazing that they go and with contempt in their hearts 
and probably um, thinly veiled sarcasm in their voices proclaim something that couldn't be more true. Christ's teaching is divine. It is right. And it is impartial. They say, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Every word that proceeded from the mouth of Christ was divine instruction from God. He shows no partiality. Christ's teaching cuts across all social strata, right? all gender, right? male, female, rich, poor, uh, all races, Jew, Gentile. Christ's teaching is for all. He shows no partiality. Right? His message wasn't merely aimed at the poor and the outcast. His, his message was aimed at the rich and the, the included within society. Jesus had male and female disciples who followed Him where He went. Jesus' um, message began with the Jews and then went through all the Roman Empire and travel, has now and continues to travel all over the world. Christ's message is impartial and all-inclusive. It's for all of humanity. And so what these um, disciples of the Pharisees, what these students of the scribes intended as vain flattery couldn't have been more true. It was absolute truth. And in in that vein, they come to Him. They say, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They ask this question, and at first glance, it seems like kind of an odd question, doesn't it? Like, how are they going to, like, you know, of all the things they could ask to try to trap Christ in His words, to get Him arrested, to have Him executed, they ask this question about taxation. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But in the first century, uh, this was a bit of a hot-button issue. Um, In our own day and age, this is also a bit of a hot-button issue. Um, In fact, 30 years earlier, when Jesus would have been just a a toddler, there was a man named Judas of Galilee who who led a rebellion. He he, he came up with this idea, came up with this this thought that that was pretty easy to rally people to. He said, you know, we're pretty heavily taxed. The Romans are a pagan empire. The Romans are sinful. They worship this false, false pantheon of deities, we shouldn't be paying taxes to support this corrupt, wicked, oppressive government. So we're going to stop paying our taxes. Right? And he rallied a whole bunch of people to them, and they started fighting against the Romans based upon this issue of taxation. Based upon this idea that it was sinful to pay taxes to a pagan government that was going to use those funds for sinful things. Um, this sounds um, uncannily familiar to the argument that, that many Christians use for justifying why they try to avoid paying their taxes today. Right? I'm not going to pay my taxes right, because the government um, engages in, in military spending that I feel is, is unjust and wicked. I'm not going to pay my taxes, many people say, uh, because the government uses that money to, to fund Planned Parenthood and abortion, um, which I'm strongly against. Just as a side note, uh, I'm not going to pay my taxes because the, all the government does is waste money, right? 
They're just wasteful, so I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to pay my taxes, many people say, because I don't want to support a nanny welfare state. So I'm just not going to pay. I'm just not going to pay. The government's immoral, and this is God's money that he has, he has given me, provided for me, and I feel that it would be wrong for me to pay taxes to a sinful institution like the United States government. Right? Maybe you've said this to yourself before. I've certainly had this said to me. I've certainly entertained this thought in my own mind at various times in my life. This line of questioning... Oh, Judas of Galilee was executed, by the way. Uh, crucified. Strung up. His, scatter, his followers dispersed violently. Uh, because if there's one thing that the government, the Roman government, would not tolerate was um, messing with the taxes. It was leading insurrection. It was causing and fomenting rebellion. And so they come to Jesus to ask this question. Right? This line of questioning right, was certain to trap him. Right? It was certain to trap him because all of the nation of Israel hated paying taxes. Right? And so they felt like this was a lose-lose situation for Christ. If he says, you've got to pay your taxes, then the people are going to turn on him. Right? The people are going to, like, pitchforks are going to come out, and they're going to kill Christ themselves. Right? They're just going to have a little quick, you know, mob, mob killing. Right? And on the contrary, if he says, well... No, you shouldn't pay your taxes. Well, then all of a sudden, we've got a legal precedent started with Judas of Galilee where Jesus is fomenting a rebellion against the Roman authorities and then the Romans will kill him for us. So the Pharisees thought that they had this perfect situation, this perfect line of questioning to catch Christ. But it says in verse 23 that he perceived their craftiness. I like that. He perceived their craftiness. He looks at the freshman team. He says, oh, you guys thought you had me. Uh, but in his divine knowledge, right, he sees right through their question. He sees right through to their hearts. He says, let's talk about the real issue here. Now, you guys want to talk about taxes. Let's talk about the real issue. He says, show me a denarius. And a denarius in this day and age, it was the Roman coin, and it was a day laborer's day wage. Right? So for, for our purposes, let's just change out denarius for a hundred bucks. Right? We all know what's on a hundred dollar bill. Right? Who's on the hundred dollar bill? Benjamin Franklin. Thank you. Everyone's like, I've never seen a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> I get direct I get direct deposit. It's it's not on my it's not on my debit card. Right. Um, right, Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin's on a hundred dollar bill. The denarius in the, the Roman Empire was was the most common coin, right? It had to be the most common coin, as you can imagine. Uh, the the way that that the the situation worked there was, you would hire somebody for a day. Right? You go out. There's parables where Jesus describes this process, where you go out to the marketplace. You need a couple dozen guys to come help you harvest or or stomp grapes, or whatever it was. You need, you, need, you need some day laborers. And so you hire them all. They come work for you. At the end of the day, you give them each a denarius. Right? And that's, that's the way it worked. And so it was one of the most common coins. Right? In our, we, and, and we know whose picture was on it. Jesus asked, you know, whose picture's on it? And they say, Caesar's. Right? We understand this. Right? We still do this. Right? In our currency, right, our money is just like their money. On our $1 bill, we've got 
George Washington, right? On a $2 bill, we have Thomas Jefferson. You look, you look panicked there, like, oh, $2 bill is my favorite currency, by the way. Um, uh, $5 bill, right? We've got Lincoln, right? We've got all our founding fathers. Um, the $10 bill, we've got Hamilton. There's the $20 bill, we've got Andrew Jackson. The $50 bill, we've got Ulysses S. Grant. The $100 bill, we've got Benjamin Franklin. Right? They're all there, right? We've got all sorts of kind of founding fathers or, or um, heroes from our country on our currency. And so Jesus says, you know, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, <coughs> they said Caesar's. They said Caesar's. And Jesus looks at them. And he says, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He's like, it's got his picture on it. Give him the denarius. Who cares? It's obviously his. It's got his picture on it. And give to God the things that are God's. It's a masterful answer. It's a masterful answer because he says, well, (coughs) (coughs) bear with me for one moment. I'm getting over a cold. (coughs) And once I start coughing, I can't stop. awful. This happened to me yesterday morning. Nearly at the same time, I think. I mean, it's just like my 10.30 coughing fit or something. Um, Did Simon go get me a cough drop? What? You're saying? That'd be awesome. That'd be fantastic. Um, Alright, I'll try to fight through that or we'll just stand here and I'll just cough. and <coughs> We'll look at one another. At this point, they all fell silent, just like you all are silent watching me cough. Um, There's probably some people coughing in the crowd. Um, Now I'm completely lost and distracted. Jesus gives this masterful answer. He says, give it to Caesar. It's got his picture on it. Who cares? It's not that big of a deal. And in saying so, he silences them. They were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him and what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. They said, wow, that was a good answer. That was pretty much the only answer he could have given to prevent the people from rising up and to prevent the government from killing him. We didn't think of that one. And they fall silent. This was their best line of attack. This was the best 
they came up with. This was the game plan. There was no plan B. I would have liked to have seen what their, their leaders said when they came back to him. And they said, you won't believe what he said. Right? And at that point, the coach is like, oh, you guys had one job. You had one thing to do. That's it. You had one thing. Right? But where they fell silent, um, I, I'd like to ask a follow-up question. You know, because I think it's of the utmost importance. Right? If, if this earthly stuff, right? I've, I've got a wallet over there. I checked this morning. I got two bucks in my wallet. Um, that's pretty normal for me. Uh, money doesn't last long in my wallet. Um, yeah, I got two bucks. We've all got a little bit of money. Right. It's kind of the <coughs> it's kind of the currency for this life. <coughs> At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's compu- completely earthly. <coughs> no matter how much we're taxed, no matter how much things cost, all that matters, it's just like <coughs> you can't take it with you. My follow-up questions is um, my follow-up question is this: If the the money, if this earthly stuff is just for now, um, what's God's? What's God's? And the uh, short answer is you. The short answer is everything else. Right? If this earthly stuff is just for now, and we can give it back to the government as freely as we've earned it or, or anything else, um, the short answer is you. You belong to God. Um, we are often so concerned right, about the money in our pockets um, that we forget about everything else. And I, I'm not denying that, that money is necessary. Um, Jesus earned money in his life. Jesus spent money. People gave money to Jesus. Like Money sustained his earthly ministry. We know that Judas was the keeper of the money bag um, uh, among his disciples. Um, there's no denying that money's <clears throat> a useful and necessary thing in our lives. Um, but it didn't define Christ. It didn't define who he was. And it doesn't define who we are. We're not defined by the, the $2 in our wallet or the $2,000 in our wallet or <clears throat> whatever it may be. Money shouldn't define, define us because we are stamped we are stamped with a far greater image. Whereas our dollar bills are stamped with a bunch of dead white guys from our history who may have may or may not have done some really good things. Um, you know, I, no, take it or leave it, whatever it is. Um, I don't have rose-colored glasses when it comes to American history. Um, they were human just like the rest of us. Um, we're stamped with a far greater image than George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, um, Andrew Jackson, Ulysses S. Grant, or Benjamin Franklin. As human beings, right, as, um, 
as believers in Christ, we're stamped with the image of God. We have God's divine imprint on us. Flip with me back to, to Genesis chapter 1. As we look at just a few verses, we're just going to... We're going to skip through a few passages of of Scripture here. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. We're going to look at at what what image is stamped on us. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Humans are made in the image of God. We have God's likeness stamped on us. Like George Washington's um, face on a quarter. This is a profound truth. This is a profound truth and, it, and it, it's an all-inclusive truth. Right? That, that, that God stamped His divine image on men and women, male and female, alike. And in our sin... So often, I, I believe, we, we, look at that God, we look at God's divine stamping on one another and it becomes a source of contention so often. Uh, um, certainly with, uh, with men and women, um, we often interpret God's stamping on us differently um, in negative ways. Right? This, is, this has led uh, throughout the millennia to the, the male sin, Right of, of kind of chauvinism, where, where men rule over and, and dominate women. And, and here in the, the latter half of the 20th century, it's, it's led to the, the feminine counter-sin of feminism, where, where the, the feminine trait is, is elevated above the male trait. And, and, and as Christians, we, we kind of look at both of those things. We say, no, it's not right. right? We don't embrace uh, male chauvinism, where men rule over women with a rod of iron and, and they're simply here to serve and, and do those kinds of things. But we, we love them and care for them as, as Christ loves and cares for the church. And, and we reject feminism as well, where, where it declares that, you know, the, the exact opposite of those things. It's like, no, we don't, we don't do that. Uh, I, for one, am, am grateful uh, for men and women in the different ways that we reflect God's image. When I, when I think about the two extremes and I think about a world filled only with men, um, that would just be a pretty empty world with a bunch of dead bodies around. Um, and when I think about just the, the equal awful place that it would be without uh, women um, or without men in the world, just a world full of women, um, that would be uh, equally awful. God created male and female, stamped both with his image. And as a church, uh, we value both uh, true masculinity and, and true femininity as it's revealed in Scripture. Um, and because of this, because we, we value people for how God has created them, both male and female, uh, it's going to change um, kind of four things in our lives. Um, this, is, this is my follow-up question. This is, this is what the, the Pharisees 
students didn't ask Jesus that I wish they would have. Um, because we're stamped with God's image, it changes um, how we view ourselves. Going back to Genesis chapter, chapter 1, we see that we have dominion over the animals. We are not an animal. In our, in our day and age, it's, it's popular for, for, for science and, and um, kind of humanistic philosophy to just see people as highly evolved animals. I would submit to you this morning that you are not an animal. Right? That you are not controlled, as animals are, by their base desires. Um, I have a dog. I think most of us in here have dogs in our homes or have experience with dogs, right? Um, Dogs are consumed by their base desires, right? If um, my dog, some of you have witnessed this, when she's hungry, she does this like convulsive dance where like it's not just the tail wagging, it's like her whole body articulating and her shaking her head in the opposite direction like I'm starving to death. And I look at her and as, you know, lots of times animals uncannily are, like dogs are kind of built like their owners and she's kind of built like a fullback. I'm like, you're not starving. You look like me, all right? Nobody's looking at me going, boy, that guy must miss a lot of meals, right? And she's not starving, but she thinks she is, right? Um, when she gets tired, she just lays down and she just, you know, lays down and falls asleep. Um, she's had her uh, feminine parts removed, so we don't have to deal with that aspect of base animal desire, but um, you get the point. You know how animals are, right? When it's time, it's time, right? And, you know, forget it. Um, the world would convince us that, that we're more or less like that, right? That, that all we are is eating, um, sleeping, working, um, yeah, and all the rest. But God says, you have my divine imprint on you. You have my divine imprint on you. You are not captive to your base desires, you can, in fact, control yourself. This changes uh, how we see our sanctification. Uh, turn with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter 5. When we come to Christ and we repent of our sins, um, we start to get cleaned up as image bearers of God. And, and the image that I have in mind here is, is of a dirty penny. All right, so, so keep that in mind, uh, of something getting scrubbed up. Right? The world would say, well, you're, you know, you're just an animal. And God says, no, you have my divine imprint on you. As we grow in Christ, we're cleaned up. And we can follow God's law better. And just as a, a quick way of reminder, um, beginning at verse 6. Or, yeah, verse 6 of chapter 5 in Deuteronomy. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his neighbor's house or his field or his servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. When we boil um, all of human sin down to its kind of basic tenets. We find it all in the Ten Commandments. We find it all. And as we grow, as we, as we realize that we have God's divine stamp 
on our lives as believers, um, we grow in these areas. We follow God's law better. We start to see and understand the world around us differently. That we say, you know what? For some of us, um, food is a God. And you say, you know what? I'm not going to worship food. I'm not going to worship my every meal. Right? Food's a necessary thing. It sustains my body. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to enjoy it. But my life is not going to be defined by food. Some of us have worshipped work before in our lives, where, where we think, oh, I, just, I just need to work harder. If I, can, if I can be fully self-actualized in my work, then I can, you know, I can have all the things I want. Some of us have, have, have worshipped our independence, right? and we have dishonored our father and mother, and, and, and we, we, we have kicked and spurned, and, and God says, no, 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 no. Honor your father and mother. Some of us have, have, have been angry and bitter people who, who would rather see our enemies destroyed, and God says, no, thou shalt not murder. Right? Some of us have been controlled by our sexual desires uh, to the point of, of destruction, and, and, and God says, no, honor me with your body, honor me with your mind, honor me with your lips. Honor me with your mouths. We grow in our sanctification as we realize we have God's imprint on our lives. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we view our sanctification. It also changes how we view our brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter five, verses one and two, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters and all purity. I love this passage because Paul's writing to a young man in Timothy, right? I think that's why he doesn't really address how you should interact with young men because he assumed that, that Timothy had that one figured out. But it changes how we interact with the people around us, right? When you understand that your spouse is imprinted with the divine nature of God, that your spouse is an image bearer of God, then you're going to treat them differently. You're going to treat them as God wants them to be treated. Your words will not be harsh. Your love will be sincere. You will serve them as God has so lovingly served us. When you think about relationships with your parents, right? So many of us have, have older parents, right? Some of us have, have older parents who are, are maybe, um, you know, they, they need some help at, at certain points in their lives or, or at some point our, our parents are all certainly going to need our help. Right? You're going to respect them and honor them as you did when you were a child. Right? You, don't, you don't go to your dad. Right? And my dad and I have plenty of things to kind of disagree about. Right? My, uh, the older I get, the more I love my dad and the more I realize that he and I just disagree on some things. Right? But I can't yell at my dad. Right? You can't be harsh with your parents. Right? You have to honor them and respect them. They never cease being your parents. Right? For, for our, um, for our famili- familial relationships, right? we've got brothers and sisters. Right? We've got people that we love in our lives, right? You can't, like, torture your little sister, right? Because you see your little sister as someone who is an image bearer of Christ. For in our friendships, right? We, we understand, we, we look at, at someone, right? For those of us who are single, uh, we, we look at someone and we say, 
I cannot sin against that person, either in word or in deed or in my mind or anything, because that's an image bearer of Christ. That is someone, and irregardless of how they view themselves, I cannot sin with that person because this person is an image bearer of Christ. And I love what I love that Paul says, treat younger women as sisters, right? Because I think there's a lot of like fun freedom you can have with your sister, right? You can hang out with, you know, your sister, brother, whatever. Um, we'll just, you know, flip the genders if you're on the other side of this thing, right? You can hang out with your sister. You can go to the movies with your sister. You don't make out with your sister. Like that's just kind of where it's at. Um, I just love that. I, I just love that analogy um, there that, although I don't think Paul said go to the movies. Um, that was totally me. I totally threw that in there. Um, but it's a good, like, freeing, um, freeing guideline for, for relationships between young, young men and young women. Right? Um, you can do a lot of fun stuff with your sister. Um, not all the fun stuff you do with your wife. So that's, we'll just leave that there. Um, getting real practical. We're going real deep on the practicality here with this passage. Um, fourthly, it changes how we view the lost. Um, as Christians... Um, I, I heard a tragic story um, this week from my, from my new employer. Uh, he was he was talking about someone that they have a business relationship, and uh, it's funny because he knows I'm a Christian. He knows I'm a pastor, but I think he keeps forgetting that. Um, and he's like he's like, wait till you get a load of this other guy that we do business with. This guy's like a super Christian. He's like he's like crazy. He's like he came down. We were hanging out. This guy's a Canadian or something. He's like he came out. We we're hanging out. Um, Right around the time that weed was legalized, and he's kind of talking about, he's like, "Boy, what do you guys think about all this?" And he's like, "I don't know. You know, um, how, how am I supposed to answer?" He's like, "Well, what do you think about?" It? He's like, "I think all drug users should be killed, executed." And um, I was like, "That doesn't sound like a super Christian to me, um, right? Because how do you view the lost, right? Even people like even people you have very little respect for." Right, I, th- I think as Christians sometimes we we, we kind of tend to respect those who are like us. Right, it's it's very easy for me, and I've I've heard people use this kind of language before, um, and I don't think they intentionally realize this, but they look at at a nice young family. Right, you you see a nice young couple with a couple of young kids, and oh, you go to church? No, you don't go to church. And and, and you think in your mind, well, this is someone whose values obviously kind of line up with my values, right? They work hard. I work hard. They're married. I'm married. They've got young kids. We've got young kids. Obviously, they might want to be saved. Right? And, and, and so you go, um, and, and the language I've heard before is, these people might be nice candidates for your church. It's from a nice, older Southern Baptist woman. Right? We're not interested in evaluating um, how dead people are in their sins and trespasses based upon how they're living their current life. Um, if we, if we um, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and this is kind of a, this is a passage I go to all the time. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
God or Paul, um, God speaking through the Apostle Paul, uh, describes the human condition here. Paul says, "You're dead in your sins and trespasses. This was all our former state before Christ. Uh, this, is, this is what how you walked, right? You followed the prince of the power of the air, right? The same spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience was at work in you. Right? You were lost, you were dead." You had no idea what you were doing until God came and saved you. So when we look at the lost, right, we should be filled with compassion. We should be filled with a desire for them to be saved and, and not merely shake our heads and say, oh, I think all the stoners should be killed. Right? I think people, you know, or, or you know, this person's so lost, I, I can't even, you know, begin to um, imagine witnessing to them. Um, we should have compassion towards them, no matter how lost they are. And this is a difficult thing. And this is a difficult thing because uh, by nature, uh, we're prideful. By nature, we're prideful. It should change how we see the lost. Because God saved us out of the exact same sin that, that they're dealing with. And so it should change how we see ourselves it should change how we see our sanctification. It should change how we, we see our relationships within the church and with others. And it should change how we see the lost. That all of humanity is stamped with the divine imprint of God. In this way, right, and, and, and what belongs to God? Right, all of it. Right, our follow-up question, getting back to our text. Um, in this way, the Gospel restores us. The Gospel restores us from something that, that doesn't even look like God right? to something that, that you can clearly and brightly see His divine image. Right? And, and, and God does this sovereignly. Right? Um, this is a dumb analogy, but I think it works. Um, one of my favorite restaurants in the world um, is in Cincinnati. It's a chili place. And um, what I love about the chili place all right, is um, as an appetizer, they give you a bowl of oyster crackers and a bottle of hot sauce. And the fun thing to do is find the oyster cracker with a little hole in it and pour the hot sauce in it and just pop them. Um, but the other fun thing to do with the hot sauce is to grab all the change out of your pocket and, and pick a dirty penny. Right? And it doesn't matter how grimy that penny is. Right? You set it on the table put a couple of drops of hot sauce on there and, you know, you couldn't even see Abe Lincoln on the penny beforehand. But you let that hot sauce do its magic for a couple minutes and then you wipe it off with a napkin and there it is, bright and shiny and new. And for some reason, I still eat it. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm eating it while this is going on. All right. That's the way the Gospel works. Right? God sovereignly and, and perfectly grabs a handful of loose change out of his pocket, sets a penny aside, pours some hot sauce on it, and cleans it up. Cleans it up to where the thing that was just grimy and dirty, you can brightly and clearly see his image. Brightly and clearly see God's image. And, and in our own lives, right, um, we all got, kind of got the gospel of hot sauce, the hot sauce gospel working on us right now in various ways. Right? 
and that God's cleaning us up. And, and my, my hope, my prayer for our church is that we, we look at the things of this world. Right? And we know. Right? Right? We all need money right? to get through the day, right? to get through the month, to get through the years. It's just the currency that this world works on. But it's not the end all. It is not the end all. Right? It's not even up on the list. It's just a necessary thing. I would encourage you to not hold to it too strongly. Right? To give it away. Um, spread it around. Um, to use it to provide for your family. Pay your taxes and don't grumble about it because at the end of the day it doesn't even matter. Right? And, and to recognize that you were imprinted with a stamp that is far more important than George Washington. Far more important than Caesar. That you are stamped with the image of the divine. And that the truth of the gospel right, would renew you, renew how you see yourself, renew how you repent of sin, renew how you interact with the people around you. Right? And, and that, that, that we would all, right, on the day of judgment, um, because of the power of the gospel, be presented to Christ as a pure and spotless bride. Right. His gleaming, shining pennies. Right. We're, we're going to come to the table and we're going to celebrate the cross as we do um, every Sunday. Right. The, 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 the means by which Christ uh, gave Himself up for us right, that we're going to get to here in just a few short pages in the Gospel of Luke when, when Christ gave Himself up on the cross to purify us um, for God's King, to redeem us from a life of sin and a life of death. And so, um, as we sing a couple songs, we just invite you to come and, and to take of the bread and dip it in the cup and celebrate Christ's goodness in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this morning. Lord, we're grateful that uh, um, for this question that these uh, people who hated your Son asked, Lord, because it reveals so much truth. Father, that this, um, this world's just temporary that all the stuff is just temporary and though we need homes to live in and food to eat, Father, we just cling to the promise that we read earlier that, um, Lord, You've been faithful to clothe, clothe the flowers of the field, that You've been faithful to clothe the birds of the sky, and we know that You will take care of and provide for us. Lord, we just um, ask that You would give us um, open hands to, to give away, Lord, and to, to give back and open hearts to receive this message and to love you and to, to serve others and love others in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your, your grace poured out for us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.